0: Brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to The Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutti, and today I'm going to be talking to the wonderful Lisa Jewell. Described as the queen of psychological suspense, Lisa's novel Ralph's Party was the UK's best-selling debut novel of 1999. Since then, she's written a further 19 books, which have sold over 5 million copies in 29 different languages. Her latest novel, The Family Remains, a sequel to the New York Times bestseller The Family Upstairs, was published by Penguin in July. It revisits characters from The Family Upstairs, like Lucy and Henry. After a bag of bones is discovered on the Thames, all sorts of secrets are unearthed. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here.
0: Now, I've been reading your books for a long time, but it was lockdown that really invigorated my love of the psychological thriller as a genre. Because thrillers were the only time that I felt I could truly escape the reality of what was happening in the house and us all kind of being locked in together. But what I really love about you and what I think brings you head and shoulders above other writers is that the plot is so tight but you also have these wonderful vulnerable flawed characters that are totally believable and I I find that really unusual and I've read that you don't tend to plan your plots no I think that's amazing I think people would assume (laughs) that you sit there for ages and just go right if that's going to happen there like a a jigsaw puzzle you know if I move that and if I move that has it always been like that
1: um, yes, I started off writing relationship novels. And of course, plotting is you know is important, but it's not vital uh, in a relationship novel. And the, the more psychological my books have become, the more important it's been to home in on the plot. It's a process of putting things on the page. If you're not planning, if you haven't got anything to refer to because you haven't really thought about it until you sat in front of your computer and started writing, it's just a process of putting things on the page and then working out what they're there for At a later point, you know, for example, I I wrote a scene the other day where a wife is going through the pockets of her husband's jackets and she's looking for something and I didn't know what she was looking for and neither did she. So I just had to randomly pull out of my brain things that you might find in your husband's jacket pockets and then worry about it later, worry how that was going to feed into the plot later. And I'm now at the point in the plot where I'm having to refer back to the things she found in her husband's pocket. So it's informing what happens later on in the book. So it looks like I did it on purpose. It looks like I knew exactly what she was supposed to be finding in her husband's pockets, but I didn't it's sort of a, a reverse way of, of plotting in a way. is like you put the things on the page and then work out what to do with them later.
0: So would you then go back and put things into the pockets that are going to be key later well, on? Well,
1: no, I could do that. But where would you stop? If I'm working in this very sort of bold, forward, moving, propulsive way, I could keep going back and changing everything and then I would lose all that energy. So it's important to me to have faith in what I've written two months ago, and stick with it and make it work somehow. Sometimes I will. Sometimes if something really is cocking up the whole the whole story and the whole plot line, then I will just go and fiddle with it. But no, generally on the whole, I just think I've put it there for a reason and I'm going to make it work. That's what, that's what my character did and therefore I'm going with what my character did and they're in charge
0: in a way. So in those moments, do you feel like almost as if the character exists and they're informing what happens or is it more that you're... Giving yourself parameters. I think the hardest thing to do is when someone says, write anything. I don't know what it has to be about. It can be about anything. I much prefer it when it's like, it has to be set here and it has to be about a 30 year old woman. So it sounds like what you're doing is very cleverly giving yourself these boundaries by writing things in a very organic, spontaneous way, and then not allowing yourself to go back and change it because that would destroy the boundaries that you've set up.
1: Yes. So I'm saying it's a way of freeing up my writing, but you're absolutely correct. It's also a way of of disciplining my writing and keeping my writing in place. And it's like sort of tent pegs in, in a way. It's just like that's in the ground now. So that's firm. That's solid. We can walk away from that bit and move on and see what happens in the next chapter, knowing that that's happened. So, yes, it's kind of a combination of keeping the energy going by not constantly going back and double thinking myself and overthinking things and changing the past. Because that's what it feels like in a way. And I kind of don't want it to be that I can just go back and change the past because then it's not real anymore because in the real world, you can't change the past. So I think that's part of the psychology of it as well. And maybe that's part of what people find so compelling about the books, a sense of, you know, a lot of people say that they feel like when they finish one of my books, they're going to look up and see the people that they were reading about walking past them on the street, or they believe that the story is still happening somewhere in the world. So I think that's a part of it.
0: Yes, it does feel like that. And it also feels like a lot of them really lead with their hearts. And that's really interesting because they'll do irrational things. They're not thinking straight some of the time. And yeah. There's a scene where Henry gets absolutely blitzed on every <laughs> kind of alcohol and drug you can probably imagine. And then it's dangerous yes. because he feels so real. You're really not sure what he's going to do. So they do seem very real. But when you're writing them, do you feel this emotional attachment to them? And do you feel like they inform the plot or is it still really you in charge kind of letting things come to you?
1: Oh, that's that's a hard question to answer because writing feels so different at different points. There are some chunks of of my narrative that you could show me in a book, and say, "God, I loved this couple of pages. They were brilliant." And I will look at them and I'll think, "Oh God, when I wrote those, I was sort of you know I was completely distracted. I was checking my email every thirty seconds while I was writing it." Um, I wasn't really connected with it. I was being mechanical. I was getting the words down. I was looking at my word count. I was doing anything apart from being in the moment, in the book with those people. But then there were other bits like the piece you just referred to with Henry careering around the streets of Chicago, completely off his face, where I was with him. I wrote those those two long paragraphs as one complete piece I did not stop I did not come up for breath I was with him on the streets of Chicago I was feeling almost as mad as him so a lot of the time I'm very mechanical and controlling everything and doing things at my pace when I want to do them when I'm ready to do them and sometimes you have a moment like that with Henry where he's like no come on strap yourself in (laughs) we're (laughs) off and you're coming with me
0: (laughs) Um, I really love the names in your books. And you often give the full names like Chris Doll, Justin Ugly, who's also known as Justin Redding in the first of these two books. And by the way, I have to say, I don't think it's necessary at all to have read the first book to enjoy this one. I had read the first book, but it completely stands alone. It's like a sequel and a standalone book, which I think is really difficult to do. But you've you've absolutely achieved it so Justin's called Justin Reading in the first book and uh, is revealed to be called Justin Ugly in this one which is an <laughs> amazing surname yes Chris Doll, Owen Pick in another of your books yeah. do you think you've heard these surnames somewhere and kind of noted them down or do you kind no. of labour over it for ages no. they seem absolutely perfect for the characters thank
1: you I'm glad you feel that way because I do I like my surnames and occasionally right, so I have a basic rule as much as I possibly can I like my characters to have a one syllable surname I think there's a power there's an impact when someone's surname has only got one syllable. I've got a Mac, a lamb, a wolf, a fox, a pick, a doll, a, a you know I, I love these one syllable surnames but every now and then I'll go off piece and I've got a Fitzwilliams um, in another one of my books but generally speaking, I limit myself to one-syllable surnames. And then if I'm having trouble thinking of a one-syllable surname, I will just Google one-syllable surnames. And the internet will present me with a long list of (laughs) one-syllable surnames that I could pick from. And it just sort of, in a way, it's that sort of limiting your options makes it much, much easier. It's like being in a restaurant with a short menu. It's much easier to decide what you're going to eat. But I do enjoy picking the right one-syllable
0: for the character and you're right, they do have a power. It's like ending things on a consonant rather than a vowel, isn't it? Yeah. It's just, a, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the animals in the book as well. So there are cats and there's one horrible cat and one nice cat yeah. in Henry's apartment. And there's a dog who Samuel, the policeman, who I really want to talk about, because I think he's such a delightful character and so different from normal cop characters Mm. but there's a dog that he meets when he goes to the house and it's a dog that belongs to the new owner and he doesn't like that dog and then he meets Fitz who's Lucy's dog and he really likes Fitz and um, I love the way that you describe them and I know you've got a dog do you kind of see personalities in dogs when you meet them?
1: Oh yes absolutely and if I'm going to put an animal in a book I want it to have some sort of function in the plot I mean quite often the function it performs is literally just to show you that the character is a sort of person who would own a cat or own a dog. But I also like to use them in a way. And so with those two animals, the way, I mean, Fitz is very useful generally. He's particularly in the first book, In the Family Upstairs. He does lots of low level growling, which I always enjoyed, but was to, yeah, was to show a side of Samuel, my detective's personality, And that was a perfect opportunity for him to tell the reader a little bit because there's not much about Samuel in the book. He's quite bare bones. I didn't put much background information about him in it. So much of what is revealed about his personality is from these tiny little moments. And dogs came along and and showed us a little bit about him. But yes, I don't think I've ever written a book that didn't have at least one pet in it. Because the world is full of pets. People have pets. So, yeah, my books should have them too. (laughs) And pets often reflect things about the owners, don't
0: they? Yes, exactly. So
1: the book I'm writing at the moment, my 21st novel, one of the main characters is a sociopath stroke psychopathic woman. And she owns this um, pomchi. And it's such a specific thing. When I pictured her, it's a pomchi and she carries it in a bag that matches her clothes. And it's not actually a Pomchi, and that's the beautiful thing about it. So she thinks she's bought a Pomchi, but it isn't. She's been ripped off. It's just some fake, (laughs) fake sort of... But it says, absolutely reams about her as a person, that she's very proud that she's got this little designer dog, but it's not even a designer dog. So they can perform very, very useful functions.
0: Yes, they really can. You say that you don't reveal much about Samuel, but I feel like he was so vivid to me. I wonder if it's just because what you reveal is so specific. And yes. it, There's a bit where he says he needs a new kitchen and then I can picture his flat and then I can picture him in yeah. his kitchen. And sometimes you don't need to say very much, do you? Precisely, um, and, and, precisely.
1: At, yeah. at any point in the writing process, you could describe absolutely anything and everything, the, the colour of the door that the character walks through, the smell in the air... And and it's all about deciding precisely the moment to describe something. And if you get it right, you've done you've done so much work with one brief sentence or or just an, an adjective sometimes. And I think that's something that has come to me over over my career instinctively is to know exactly the thing that the reader needs to know about this character, all this room, all this atmosphere, the one thing that will just pinpoint it in their head and they'll say, okay, I know exactly what we're dealing with now. And it's knowing exactly what to leave out because you could pile on detail until the cows come home and it's not going to make the experience any more enjoyable or clearer
0: for the reader. Yes, because it's about them building up their own picture as well, isn't it? With guidance, I always think. Yes. Um, Well, let's move on to your first object Uh, we ask everyone to bring in some objects when they appear on this podcast and the first one I'd love you to talk about is the nameplate from outside Uh your childhood bedroom
1: yes so this is weird because um I was born in London and brought up in the same house until the day I left home when I was 18 years old so I only ever lived in one house I had a couple of bedrooms. I had two sisters and we moved bedrooms a bit. And we were this was the 70s and 80s and we all had Laura Laura Ashley bedrooms and I always had blue. So I had the blue Laura Ashley bedroom. And then I saw my sister a couple of weeks ago and she'd been having a clear out of her house. And she found in a box somewhere these little ceramic nameplate for my bedroom and it says Lisa's room in this really old-fashioned font and these ugly little flowers printed on it. And it was just one of those things where you look at it and you're just there. It's like we were just talking about, in fact, just one of those tiny little details that I looked at it it just conjured up a whole world. It was Pristian in a way. It just plugged me straight back into the cottage where I grew up, my childhood, our bedrooms, the Laura Ashley wallpaper, growing up with sisters. Anyway, so it was just one of those things. So yeah, Lisa's room. There it
0: is. (laughs) I think I can picture that kind of nameplate. Is it white?
1: It's white ceramic, Um, yeah. Yes. It's ugly. I mean, it probably came from, you know, like those seaside shops and on carousels and you can spin them around and get all sorts of personalised things with your name on them. I think that's probably where it came from.
0: (laughs) I know the library was such a big part of your life when you were growing up. Did you tend to go into your room shut the door and go, I'm reading now? Or can you read with other people bustling around you? And could you when you were younger? That's
1: a really good question. I'm trying to remember. No, I don't think I ever read. My mother was always trying to read a book downstairs. So if you'd actually been to my childhood home, there were no books. We had one bookshelf that was filled with Reader's Digest condensed reads that my father bought from the Reader's Digest. But we didn't have any actual books. We never went to bookshops. So every book in my house came from a library and went back to a library. And my mother was always trying to read downstairs. I don't know why she thought she'd be able to read with three children in the house and was always getting terribly frustrated and saying, I've read the same line 20 times. (laughs) But I don't know. I never read in, in communal areas of the house. I read in my room. And yes, the library was massively important as libraries always are, but particularly for us, because I think the bottom line about my family home is that my father was the one with the strong aesthetic idea of what a house should look like so he made all the decisions about what was and wasn't allowed in the house and books was one of the things that wasn't allowed in the house so from that point of view and then he lived with four four women who were all you know voracious readers so without the library yeah, it would have been a very different very different childhood for me and maybe a completely different life if I hadn't learnt to love books at such a young age. But yeah, the library was a massive part of our childhoods.
0: And do you tend to hold on to objects? You know, like well, now you've got the nameplate, will you keep it? <gasps> do you tend to have a lot of objects from the past that you hold on to? The,
1: yes, good question. Um, So I've always been slightly... On the hoarding spectrum. And then about three years ago, I had to, we were having our house renovated top to bottom. So I had to empty it completely. I couldn't leave a stick of anything in the house. And I just spent a month, I took a month off work to sort the house out and got rid of nearly everything. And what I did was that thing of just making nice boxes to put very, very special things in. My question I asked myself when I was deciding what to clear out of the house was when I'm dead and my children come to their family home to clear it out, will they think this is beautiful? If they do, I'll keep it. Will they think it's interesting? If they do, I'll keep it. And will they think it's useful? And if they do, I'll keep it. So I don't think this nameplate actually fits under any of those criteria. It's neither useful, beautiful, nor interesting. But I I can't get rid of it now. It's just sitting here in my room now and I think it's here to stay and my children will have to lob it at some point in the future.
0: They might have a daughter called Lisa, one of them, and then they can use it.
1: Good point. Retro yes.
0: stylings. The vintage <laughs> <Exactly>. look. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's move on to your next objects. I love the sound of this. This is a, a cassette from your teenage years. Yeah,
1: And this is really weird because I have somewhere um, a few shoeboxes full of the cassettes that I kept from my teenage years. I don't know how old you are, Izzy, but I'm old enough to remember being a teenager. Had everything well, like, to... yeah,
0: I'm 43, so, so I think do, we're do you, probably around the same. Do you remember yeah. cassettes and vinyl? Absolutely. Yes, and
1: record, yeah. recording things off the radio by actually putting the cassette recorder next to the radio. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So I've got a couple of boxes of old cassettes and most of them are ones that are... Recordings, they're blank cassettes that you used to buy multi packs of from W.H. Smith's and then record various things onto them. But so most of my music was vinyl, but this is a rare cassette and it's You Can't Hide Your Love Forever by Orange Juice. And I think if any band sums up the sort of music that I was listening to when I was a teenager, Orange Juice is it. You know, when people talk about the 80s, it's all oh Madonna and Culture Club and leg warmers and and fingerless gloves and neon. And I just wasn't that teenager in the 80s. I was absolutely not that teenager. I was into indie music. The more obscure, the better. I used to listen to John Peel every night. I used to write to John Peel a lot. And he invited me to a studio one night to watch him recording and then he double booked me and I got there with my friends and we had to go home again and that was very sad but it did mean that um, John Peel called my house a couple of times and I had my mum call I was listening to John Peel in my bedroom at the top of the house and I heard my mum calling up the stairs "Lisa I've got John Peel on the phone for you." <laughs> but yes I never actually got to meet him sadly. And so yes I don't know how this cassette this cassette was in the cassette player of my old car my Ford Focus. I don't know what it was doing in there how it ended up in there and then it when I bought a new car I took it out of the Ford Focus and put it in the back of a drawer and it, so it's just this sort of random cassette floating around my house but every time I look at it, I just feel joy. I feel happy. I feel like it just sort of smells and looks like my teenage years in my bedroom when I was just discovering this incredible world of music and alternative music. And I felt like I was on this voyage of discovery the whole time and listening to things that nobody else was listening to. And so that's my orange juice cassette.
0: When you are are a teenager, your identity generally, mine was as well, is so tied into what music you listen to and what music your friends listen to and how you dress and stuff. But writing such a solitary activity, do you still have those experiences of being at gigs in a crowd or going out in a group and all having the same common goal you mean do I still
1: go and watch live music
0: i really yeah or do you go I don't know maybe to some kind of class that you go to with friends that you all go to together and get excited about no
1: the only thing I do sort of you know with, with groups of people these days is sort of drinking
0: really. Um, <laughs> I mean I, 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 can, uh, I can attest to that being definitely uh, <laughs> very important.
1: Long afternoons in people's gardens. No I haven't really managed to recreate that sense of um, togetherness and belonging in any other aspect of my life apart from I suppose you know I spend a lot of time with other writers. And there's a camaraderie there, obviously, but it's not quite the same thing because I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like you plug yourself into something and you're part of something that's bigger than you. And I have been, I mean, I still do go to the occasional live music concert and I, I love it. I'm there, I'm up in the mosh pit. I want to be right in the absolute depth of it, the heart of it. And yeah, just not not be an individual any longer. So, yes, I still am capable of doing that. I just don't make the opportunities for myself to do it so much. My life has become much more about individual pursuits and family pursuits and the occasional boozy night. Maybe there's a, a lesson in there that I should try and do with more things like that particularly after the last couple of years when you weren't allowed to so
0: (laughs) yes i've made a kind of vow with myself it's hard with kids though isn't it to kind of put those those evenings in sometimes oh well no
1: mine are old enough now that i don't even need to okay i I don't even have to think about them anymore it's like kids what kids
0: Well, maybe you could take them with you to the gig. Well,
1: absolutely, yes, that's more likely. <laughs> yeah.
0: And um, so I needed an art foundation course. You've had such a varied career, yeah. actually. I know you probably wouldn't consider that your career necessarily, but just if you look back over your life, I love the variety that there's been. You were a PA, and you worked for Thomas Pink, yeah. and so you worked in fashion for a while. And you were a pattern cutter, were you? No, it, it I worked, worked in, in I worked in the pattern cutting room.
1: So I was the yes. assistant to the pattern cutting room manager. And this is why it's hard for me now with the with older children who are reaching that point in their lives where they're going to start making decisions that form the journey of their life. I can't find the energy to get anxious about it because I had a mother who let me find my own way and it worked out really well for me. It may not work out so well for my children. I don't know. But yeah, so I just never, ever knew what I wanted to be. I had no clue. Uh, I wanted to be a music journalist for, for quite some time. And I don't know why I stopped wanting to be a, a music journalist. I went to a very good grammar school where everybody stayed on to do their A-levels. I went back to grammar school for my first day in the sixth form and just went, nope, I'm done. I'm not ready to spend another day in this place with the same people and the same four walls and the same pressure to succeed. And I went home and I said to my mum, I don't want to be there anymore. I want to do something else. She said, well, let's take you up to Barnet College. She took me there the same afternoon. She was so cool, my mum. And yeah, that's where I, I signed on to their Art Foundation BTEC course. So I spent two years at Barnet College doing that. And even, I nearly got kicked off that course because I didn't really do anything, but I managed to pull it back. And even at the end of it, I still had no idea what I was going to do with this art foundation, BTEC. And then all my friends went off to Epsom for the day to go and check out this course at Epsom School of Art and Design called Fashion Promotion and Communication, which is as random as it sounds. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll just go with them. And then I thought, oh, this looks like a nice place. Maybe I'll apply here. So I ended up doing that for two years with no idea. I didn't want to be a fashion promoter or a fashion communicator. (laughs) And then I applied for jobs were easy to come by in those days. Everything was easy to come by in those days. And I can't remember where I found the job advert, but I applied for the job as a pattern room assistant at Warehouse, Warehouse, the high street retailer. So I finished college on the Friday and I started work on the Monday. I moved immediately into a beautiful flat in Battersea Park but, yeah, you know, on my £6,000 a year salary, I had this big, yeah. this big double bedroom in a flat share in Battersea Park. And yeah, my life just started then, but still I had no idea. And then I got promoted into the publicity department and I went into fashion PR for a while and I wasn't very good at it. And then I lost my job because I wasn't very good at it. I was made redundant, but I think it really is because they wanted to sack me. But I, w- <laughs> I wasn't quite bad enough to be sacked. And then I was unemployed for a year. Oh, and then in between, I married this guy, I mean, this random guy I met in a, in the personal ad, so I didn't even love, and he was awful, and he kept me locked up in a house in the suburbs. But one thing that was quite good about those those years, I was with him for five years in the suburbs, was that he was a big reader and. He just kept giving me book after book after book to read. And they were all really good books. And it completely reignited my love of reading. And it also started sowing the seeds of thinking, oh, you know, maybe this is something that I could have a go at. And then I got a job. After a year of unemployment, I got a job working as a receptionist at Thomas Pink, the shirtmakers, in their head office in Battersea. And that was where I met my husband, my second husband, the good one, the decent husband. And that was also... The starting point of everything that led to me writing my first novel it all kicked off from there but basically it was this really messy disjointed series of bizarre decisions spending years doing things I was not interested in married to people I didn't like and just sort of going with the flow and not having any control or any sense of direction but (laughs) Hey ho. <laughs> it, it all it all worked out in the end. So.
0: <laughs> exactly. And I can't help thinking that because of your personality it was, it was always going to be okay. I mean, it's easy to say that in hindsight, but
1: Yeah, that is my motto in life is everything's going to be okay. It'll be fine. And that's why I'm I'm having challenges with this stage of parenting because my natural instinct is just to just goes fine, doesn't matter that she's like not done any revision for her summer exams. Doesn't matter. She'll be fine. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that I won't be proved to be completely incorrect and have completely cocked up my children's lives by
0: being so liberal. But yeah, well, I I think it's great. Well, actually, you just talked about your first husband, and that kind of brings us on to your next object—the engagement ring oh. for, from that marriage to him.
1: Yes, I'm I'm holding it, holding it in my fingers. Yes, there it is. It's tiny. I can't even get it on that finger now. So yeah, I met this guy. He put an ad in the back of Loot. I don't know if you remember Loot. I, I remember Loot, yeah. Back in the day, before there were any other ways of um, meeting people or buying things or getting jobs, there was this paper called Loot and it was free and it was just full of personal ads and and um, classifieds, basically. And I read this personal ad of this guy said he liked Tom Waits and picnics and I can't just all sorts of quite cliched things. Um, but yeah, as a, as a 20-year-old, desperate for a nice boyfriend. He sounded lovely. So we got in touch and we spent some time talking on the phone and then we went out on a date and I saw him outside the restaurant where we were supposed to be meeting and I thought, nope, don't like you. You are not my type. This is not happening. But I thought, let's just go and at least have a meal, be polite and then draw a line under it. And I don't really know what happened. He was just very charming and very clever and very nice. And I found myself being dragged into his web by his charismatic ways and I kind of persuaded myself that oh maybe I could learn to fancy him maybe I could learn to love him he's so much better than all these other guys I've been meeting in nightclubs who are all losers at least he's got a decent Mm. job he wears a nice suit he's lovely to me he buys me things he tells me I'm beautiful he doesn't let me down so I I sort of talked myself into being with him and then 3 months after we met he proposed to me which was a, a bit of a curveball and 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 the fool foolish child foolish child I was I said yes because I just was so sort of taken aback and unprepared for such a moment that I just wanted to be polite really I felt like I couldn't say no I also thought I could back out if I got cold feet And then we set a wedding date for exactly a year after the date of our first date, but uh, between that point of getting engaged to him, which also, of course, entailed me moving in with him, which I'd had no intention of doing before. I didn't. He had a horrible flat. Between that point and the point of the wedding, he showed me his true colours and it turned out he was a coercive controller. I didn't really understand what I was dealing with. I didn't understand why this man who was so nice to me one minute could just stop talking to me for three days because I'd looked at him sideways or come back from work 10 minutes late or worn the wrong clothes or mentioned an ex-boyfriend in passing or, you know, any number of things could just absolutely cut off any form of communication from him to me. And thats it's a really weird thing to explain to somebody who hasn't lived with someone who behaves like that how mortifying that is and how hurtful it is and how confusing and how all you want is that person to start communicating with you again, for that wall to come down and for everything to be like it was the day before when everything was perfectly nice. So instead of just going, this is absolute nonsense, why are you behaving like a child? Why aren't you talking to me and like packing your bag and leaving? You just sort of modify your own behaviour and I'm not that sort of person or I would have said I wasn't that sort of person, but I proved that anyone can be that sort of person when someone can find their way into your head, find your weak spots, press your buttons and that's what he did. I was convinced that if I ever left him, he'd immediately throw himself in front of a train. His happiness all hinged upon me. His mood hinged upon me. It was all about me and that if I displeased him or... Left him or hurt him, that he would basically just die. Thus followed five really dark, dark years. It was never anywhere on my own. I wasn't allowed to see my friends, my family. I didn't have a front door key. We didn't have a phone. I never spoke to anybody on the phone, Uh, particularly in that year when I was unemployed. At least when I had a job, I was able to use the phone at work. So it was very, very dark and very, very awful and then so very surprisingly easy to get out of when the moment arrived, which it did the day that the man I'm now married to told me that he was falling in love with me and that he was prepared to wait for me to to leave my husband. But did I have any idea when
0: that might be? And, and it was that night as it turned out. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's why you write so wonderfully about controlling men in, in more than just this book. And I think it's true that it's very subtle the way it starts. And it's so easy for people outside it to say that people can leave. And I think you capture so well how you don't see it starting to happen. Like even there's a bit with, with Rachel and Michael in this book, I think, you know, he is, I mean, he's a terrible man. He does terrible things, but the way it starts slowly, the way that he's so charming when they first meet. And then there's a bit where Rachel's going onto the tube and he texts her, I think the first time for me is when Michael becomes kind of obsessed with what they're going to have for dinner. Mm. And he texts her saying, what do you want to eat? And she has to send this text before she loses reception. And that was such a key moment for me because I thought, gosh, you know, she's frightened. And yet she's from the outside, a highly successful, really talented, beautiful jeweller. She's got so much going for her. a Great, you know, great personality, loads of friends. And I think that it's so well portrayed also with David Thompson the man who ends up corrupting the house and he's he's talked about in this book and you know explored fully in the family upstairs in a different way Um, and it's not just men because Birdie as well is extremely controlling but I just think it's so well portrayed and there's a character like Henry he on the surface is a bit dangerous. So you'd meet him and go, Oh my God, you know, you're you seem a bit off the rails. You're yeah. having you're having work done to look like someone else who you're obsessed with. You're obviously not stable. You drink and take drugs to excess. I think you could be violent. Yet to me he isn't like that. He's yeah. he's a very vulnerable, kind of a broken human being. Yeah. Um, Do you ever struggle with a character and go, I don't think I'm painting them in a fair light? Or is it to do with when you reveal things about them?
1: I don't know about struggling. I think that's something that comes quite innately to me is being able to show in, I've written some absolutely horrendous characters. And in fact, David Thompson, there you go, that's actually to answer your question specifically. If I could write The Family Upstairs again, I would give more nuance to the David Thompson character. I think because we're only seeing him from one person's point of view, we only see him from Henry's point of view, and tangentially from his son Finn's point of view. I just feel like I would like to have been able to get further into him. Why? Why the hell has he spent his life crashing into other people's families and trying to steal their money and leave them sort bereft and bankrupt? He needed to do that for the plot to work. But I feel a bit dissatisfied that I've never worked out exactly why he was that way. Because with all my other characters that you're that you're referring to, or someone like Noel in the, the then she was gone. I did so much work to get the reader to try and see the world from their perspective and understand about broken children. So yes, I think David Thompson is someone that I I feel I let him down in a way. But they, maybe maybe he maybe he. Oh, yeah, a third one. I oh, know. Yeah, maybe he wouldn't have I been so much so. fun. Maybe he was meant to I be think... more one-dimensional. I don't know.
0: I never read it thinking he's two-dimensional. He came in and he just caused absolute yeah. havoc. And as you say, it was from one point of view. But if you would write a third <laughs> book, I, I'd be first on the list. Oh, to read there you go. Back in time. Yes, yes. Yeah. We <laughs> could
1: absolutely follow him from his childhood to his yeah. to his tragic death on the kitchen floor at Cheney Walk. <laughs>
0: yes. Um, okay well and um, let's move to your next object this is a reporter notepad and pen and yeah. um, from your creative writing classes so this is another thing
1: that I found I can't remember what I was looking for but I found this weird canvas bag somewhere in my house and I found that it contained all the things that I had brought so when I left my first husband I moved in to a flat with my sister and her boyfriend. And then probably six months after that, I moved into my current husband's flat. And I think I just brought this canvas bag. I didn't have anything. I left my marital home with nothing. I didn't want anything from that house. So I brought this canvas bag and what it had in it, which I found was, yeah, this um, Sylvine is a brand. It just looks so old fashioned. Yes, uh, I
0: know that brand. Yeah, Sylvine yes. red
1: reporter's notepad with the white spiral uh, spine and it also has a little yellow bick with a black lid on it stuck inside the um the spiral. And it's the reporter's notepad that I used to take to my creative writing classes. So this is right, so when I left my husband, the first thing I did was think, I wanna do something to celebrate the fact that I'm allowed to do whatever the hell I like now. And because I was working as a receptionist at the time, answering the phone at Thomas Pink, I thought maybe it'd be nice to give my brain a little workout. And so I went on to is it Spotlight, that magazine that shows you all the the courses in London.
0: Yes, I think it is. Yeah, so I think
1: I bought a copy of Spotlight and found out that there were evening classes every Monday night. And I thought Mondays are good because, you know, nobody goes out on a Monday, so it's not going to eat into my social life, my newly rediscovered social life. And I, yeah, signed up for these creative writing classes six o'clock on a Monday night at the Working Men's College in Camden. And it was two terms, I think. I can't remember, two or three terms anyway. And... I've always said that you can't teach someone to write, and I still maintain that you can't teach someone to write. But what was brilliant for me about these classes, as someone who had not written creatively since I was, you know, 15 years old or whatever, was just unlocking those little doors inside my head. So we'd have briefs, and the brief would be go away and, and describe a room. So you'd write sort of. 500 words described or 300 words describing, or write a a journalistic piece about uh, something that happened when you were a child. And so every week we were just sent away to just focus on something and write a small piece of descriptive or journalistic writing. And it just sort of made me think, oh, actually, yeah, I really enjoy this. I'm really enjoying finding the right words to describe these things. And I also. Well, I think what was very very important is that uh, every week we were told to read our homework in front of class, and I just always got such positive feedback. And I remember someone saying to me, "You've got a really commercial style of writing. You should probably try to write a book." So that just sort of put that away as a little, a little seed of you know, inspiration, and it was all there ready to go when I had the fortuitous conversation, which I think probably relates to my. I think we're probably moving. Probably, yes, relates. Which, which I think, yeah.
0: yeah I, can't wait to talk yeah. about that. Do you still remember people from that evening class?
1: Oh, I remember. So there was this one guy, and I think that this is he's a staple of any creative writing class. There was this one guy who came every week, and he looked very intelligent. He was probably the same age I am now. And he never wrote anything. He was always very encouraging of everybody else's work and very chatty. And then it was the last lesson and he finally turned up with something he'd written and it was this long, really TMI piece of writing about some young woman he'd had an affair with who dumped him and broken his heart. And I just realised he'd only come because he wanted to write this down. This had been such a huge thing for him and he just wanted to write it down and it took him the whole duration of this course to finally feel ready to write it down, oh. and it was it was a bit it was a bit awkward because it was really, really personal and intimate, so I, I remember him, and then I, I remember another lady who lived in a flat overlooking the pond on Hampstead Heath, and she was just so classically the sort of lady who would live in a house overlooking the ponds on Hampstead Heath, and she would just write all this beautiful poetry about the view from her window, uh, but no, I don't remember anybody else, I just remember those two those two, yeah. Oh.
0: OK, well, let's move on to, as you just mentioned, this is a seminal moment Um happened on holiday and you've got an object to represent it.
1: Yes. And it is—it is a book. I was trying to try and avoid books because well, if I started looking for books that sort of have informed my my life and my writing and what have you, I didn't wasn't quite sure where I'd stop. But this is this is a book in a different league entirely to any other book in terms of the impact it's had on my entire life. I actually have three copies of this book, but the one I've got here is the original one that I bought in 1995. And took on holiday to Malta. So this was the very first holiday I went on with my second husband, who I'd been going out with for a few months by then. So this was at the time when I'd been doing my creative writing lessons and enjoying my newfound freedom, but before I'd moved in with him. And it's High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. And I wish you could see it because everybody on that holiday read it. We all took it in turns. We all read it in a day. (sighs) And it's so yellow and crispy and crusty and stained and just amazing. It's an amazing thing because of you know the the history that it carries within. That's all the pool, the old pool water and what have you from a.
0: That's (laughs) I love books like that. I hate it when books are pristine. I love it when they've got tea marks on them and the pages have been turned over. They've been read in the bath. But this is like that squared. I mean to have the old and so many people have read it in the sea water. That's just great. Yes,
1: yes, indeed. And anyway, so we all read this book and we all absolutely loved it. And what I felt when I read it, having done some of these creative writing classes and having read so many really interesting books during my marriage years with my first husband, and because he was a man, most of his books were written by men. So I've, I've been reading a lot of books written by men. But none of them had given me that sense of a voice that I recognised so clearly as the voice in high fidelity, particularly where I was at that point, which was with my this boyfriend who had all these friends. And we were in the pub every night and we were eating curry at midnight and lager and getting stoned and doing, you know, that whole London messy night. We were proper London 90s messy people. And here it all was in a book. Plus the sense of um, looking back on his relationships, which is something that I've always been very interested in is a pattern of, you know, that's a a whole nother podcast you can do is to describe your life in terms of your relationships. But I just thought, well, this is such an interesting take on on life, you know, a, a story told through the history of your relationships, but a woman could have written this and... Maybe I could be the woman to write such a book. And it seemed a little audacious and a little crazy. You know, I was a receptionist at the time with a few creative writing classes under my belt. But thankfully, thank God, there was this one night on the holiday where everybody else had gone to bed, apart from me and this girl called Yasmin, who was a friend of my husband's. And she was a journalist at the time. She's now an astrologist. And just before I went on this holiday, I'd lost my job at Thomas Pink. So I was unemployed again. So she asked me what I was going to do when we got back from holiday and I was in London without a job. And I said, I'm going to sign up with some temping agencies. And she said, some people use redundancy as an opportunity to sort of change the direction of their life. Is there not something at this point in your life that you've always wanted to do? And I found myself saying, it was four in the morning. I was drunk. It was audacious. Uh, But I'm so glad I said it. I said, I think I might like to write a novel. And she made me take a bet on it and we shook hands. And she said, you don't actually have to write the whole novel. She said, why don't you just try writing three chapters? And if you do that, I'll take you out for dinner to your favourite restaurant. And uh, so we did We got back to London. Uh, My husband, being a geek, had a home computer, which was quite unusual in those days. Uh, So I used his home computer and wrote the three chapters of the book. And those were the first three chapters of Ralph's Party, which was my first novel.
0: So, yes. Do you think you would have still done it if you hadn't had that conversation or if she hadn't been on that holiday, say?
1: No. I guess because I did this creative writing course and that guy had said the thing about, you've got a very commercial voice. Because this was pre-Bridget Jones. This was pre that whole boom in women's fiction, women's commercial fiction written by young women. And previous to that, most of the women's fiction I'd read had been like older women. And so I think I thought... This is something that you do when you're an older woman, when you've had your children and you've had your life and you've made your mistakes and you've learnt your lessons and you've been ill and then you've got stuff to write about. So I think I'd always put it as, as sort of out there somewhere, a thing that I would do when I had something to write about. I suppose that was the high fidelity thing. Of just thinking, you don't need anything to write about. You can just have <laughs> I could just, you know, write write about my ex-boyfriends and there, there's an entire novel in it. So I think I wouldn't have done it then at all, no. And having not done it then, I have no idea if that was a sliding doors moment, and then I would not have done it at all. Maybe life would have got in the way and I could have got to the age I am now, which is probably the age I thought I would be if I was ever going to write a novel and not be in the headspace or even think about writing a novel. So It wasn't just luck. It was everything, that conversation. I really believe it was. Have you ever met Nick Hornby and told him? (gasps) I have. I'm terrible meeting my idols. I just clam up. I actually spent a whole day with him, not just him, The Penguin a few years ago put a load of their authors on a double-decker bus and drove us up and down Oxford Street and we got out and signed books at different branches and he was on the bus and I was just awestruck. And then this other writer at the end of the day said, oh, I know Nick, let's invite And I told her the whole story. She said, let's invite him out for a drink afterwards. And I ended up in a bar with this other writer and with Nick Hornby and I still couldn't talk to him properly. I still just sort of gawped at him and just, you know, so I've, ne- I've never told him how important that book was to me. I really understand
0: that. It's almost too big to communicate, yes. isn't it? I, I really get that. Okay, well, um, I wish we could talk further, actually, but um, we'll have to move on to your last object now. Um, So this is a paperweight.
1: Yes, and this is brand new. All these other things on my little pile of objects are ancient and, and stained and smelly and old, but this is brand new. So my mother died in 2005. She was only 61, very young. I mean, God, I'm going to be 61 in seven years, so it's quite extraordinary to think about it. And her wishes were that even though she and my father were divorced, neither of them had ever remarried. And he had a plot reserved for himself in the church near the house where we were brought up. And she said, just put me in there. Put me in there with him. So for years and years and years, she lived in a box under my sister's desk waiting for my father to die so that she could go in his plot. And then my father met someone and remarried and they're adorable, and this woman adores him. And as much as I don't know she'll be buried with him, we just thought, we can't put our mum in with him when he's married to somebody else. And so thus we've had like four years of my mum sitting in a box under my sister's desk and just not knowing what to do with her, just feeling it wrong that we don't have somewhere that we could go and see her or talk to her or think about her. And then me and my sisters were away a couple of weekends ago visiting my father actually for his birthday and my sister got these little packets out of her bag and handed them to us and I could see that her her eyes were wet that she was feeling emotional I was like oh my god what's inside these packages and we opened them and yeah there are these three paperweights formed into the shapes of hearts and embedded in the clear plastic the name for which eludes me are dried flowers and underneath the dried flowers is a layer of our mother's ashes. So, yes, yeah, so I'm holding it now in my hand. So, finally, after, oh gosh, what's that? Nearly eight, 17 years, 17 years, I have my mum and she is here. And that is just a wonderful thing. And I just thought if I'm here talking about objects, I can't not talk about this object because this is, you know, massively emotional and important. And Also, the timing is brilliant because I didn't own this object two weeks ago, so I wouldn't have been able to talk about it. But here it is in my
0: hand and it's a very beautiful thing. And was your mother more like you than your father was in terms of being creatively minded?
1: Um, I found old exercise books of both of my parents in the loft and both of them are really good at creative writing. They both had a lovely way with words. My father always pens lovely cards, beautiful messages in the cards that he sends. And my mother always used to write lovely letters. So both of them had a nice way with words. But my mother was a bookworm and my father was not. My father was one of those men who took a Wilbur Smith on holiday and that was it. So I definitely get the bookworm, the reading element from my mother. But yeah, I think both of them, both of them were good
0: with the the English language. I think a paperweight is a brilliant thing to have. My father died 11 years ago. We don't have ashes. But if you do want them to be made into something, it has to be something beautiful, I think.
1: And it feels so nice in my hand as well. That's another thing. It's not cold. It's got this lovely warmth to it. And it's a lovely shape. And it just fits in the palm of my hand. And it's just pretty to look at. And it catches the light and all of these things. And it's wonderful. I know my mother would have loved it. So, yeah, there's my mother. A tiny part of her, anyway, forever captured. And uh, that is definitely something that my children will be keeping when I've passed on. I've, I've already told them that. Yes. That's not that's not going to
0: Oxfam. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> um, well, the last thing that I wanted to ask you is about research. Actually, I've got two more questions. Um, so the penultimate thing I wanted to ask you is about research, because I don't doubt all the facts, all the police facts in your books. And I just completely trust that they're right. And I wondered how much you research whether you've become more of an expert as time's gone on and you've written more, of a, more about you shaking no. your head.
1: Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. I've always assiduously avoided police procedure in my books because I don't. I once bought a book for authors about police procedure and i started reading it and i just thought i can't i'm just no i'm just not going to write about the police it's fine and if i ever have had them in my books they've always been in the background being a bit bumbling being a bit hopeless somebody else always solves the crime because they were too slow i always blame their sort of cut budgets on the fact that they can't deal with <laughs> they can't deal with these cases properly um <laughs> and then i started writing this book so there's three main strand well originally it was supposed to be the three main strands of the book Lucy, Rachel and Henry and then I was going to interweave between these strands little tiny chunks of other people who had found this bag of bones by the banks of the Thames. And they were all going to be just like one page long. And so the bag of Bones is originally found by a mudlarker called Jason in the first chapter. So I wrote that from his point of view. And then I switched to the point of view of the forensic detective, Saffron Brown. And then I flicked to the view of the case detective, Samuel Owusu. And I just got stuck on him. I couldn't move it. He he was only supposed to be one chapter and then I was supposed to move on to different ground. And uh, I just got stuck on him. I just loved him. So much, and his chapters got longer and longer and longer, and I suddenly realised, oh my god, I'm writing a detective, and I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just hoping that all the all the detective shows I've watched and all the true crime stuff I've watched has like lodged itself in my brain firmly enough that I'm not completely screwing it up and talking nonsense.
0: But It doesn't feel like you are. I mean, all the interview things—they do an interview on Zoom with police in Chicago, or what on Zoom necessarily, but you know, on a yeah. screen, I completely Good. believe. it. Of course, that's what they do if you have a suspect abroad and you need to interview them urgently there's a bit where you mention a tree detective which I just loved and that was the moment where I thought she must have people on speed dial you know that she can go hey how would you if you needed to know what kind of leave these were or where these leaves grew you know yeah Um, I'm flabbergasted but good for you it doesn't matter as long as it rings true It,
1: it totally depends and I was talking to somebody about this yesterday so I once sent a proof copy of Invisible Girl, which has a small amount of police procedure in it, to Claire McIntosh. And Claire McIntosh used to be a police detective. And she read it and immediately emailed my editor and said, is it too late to make any changes? Is it too late? And my editor was like, oh God, it is too late. It's gone to the presses. And so it went to the presses full of errors. I never asked Claire what the errors were because I kind of didn't want to know. And interestingly... Many, many people have read that book since it came out and I've not had one person say the police procedure is absolutely ridiculous. So I suppose what I'm saying is that I think only people involved in very particular areas of police work would be able to see the the holes in it, the flaws, the mistakes. And that's a tiny percentage of the people who read my book. So. And then also, do you think it's possible to get
0: too sidetracked? by things like research. Oh,
1: absolutely. That's why I don't do any. Well, that's what that's what I tell myself. Yeah. Oh, no, then you get stuck with certain immutable things. You get stuck with things and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't be flexible with it because, like, no, I read the thing and it said that that could never happen like that and that only ever happens on a Tuesday. It would never happen on a Wednesday. So that's quite limiting. But, oh, Here's a good example of when not doing research sort of backfires. And you won't know this because you're English, as am I, but there's a scene in The Family Remains where Lucy takes the kids out for a burger and they go to this place called In-N-Out Burger, which is like a cult restaurant. And I yeah. took my daughter and her friend there when we were in L.A. a few years ago. And I just stupidly assumed that it was coast to coast. Uh, you could get an in and out Burger anywhere you wanted in America, like a McDonald's. And you will not believe the percentage of early reviews from American readers saying there is no in and out Burger in Chicago. <laughs> it's literally stood out from this entire book like a sore thumb. So luckily we've made that change in time for the print run. But yes, so. Isn't it
0: funny how people get so pedantic about something yes. like that? Like, they're like no 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 no. I've got you know I've got to say it, it just, just doesn't no. matter it's a, a burger bar isn't it
1: yes yes absolutely um but yeah so no you're, you're you're right that often too much research can really slow things down and make it harder to be a writer
0: I think but then I know other writers who swear by research so everybody's different because of the way you write you have this energy and you what we talked about at the beginning it seems wrong for you now to do that meticulous research because presumably you 'd have to do it in draft yeah. two, and then that would provide all sorts of challenges, yeah. so I think it's absolutely right that and I truly believe it just doesn't matter yeah. whether it 's true or not, true to life or not, as long as it makes sense within the story and it doesn 't jar it. none of it does well look yeah. at me, I just assumed as I say yeah. that it had lots of mates you could go oh does court meet on a friday yeah. <laughs> at two and keep thank going, you doing are research. you are you giving me permission
1: <laughs> to be a lazy
0: writer yes i 100% am and um, right my last question is it feels like a bit of an innocuous question but this airbnb that henry and finn yeah. stay in in chicago has just stuck with me well and also because i haven't been abroad for about eight years actually since my daughter was born i want to yeah. go to this airbnb so the way that you describe it the apartment that Finn's living in has this door knocker in the shape of a fox's head. It's this big building opposite a kind of bistro cafe in Chicago. The stained glass, there's floral mosaic panels, the lift has a gate that opens and closes. Does this place exist and can oh, I go there?
1: No, I just made it all up. I knew I wanted it to be Art Nouveau. Because I did, I Google imaged Chicago streets. And so I just spent a few minutes looking at, at facades in Chicago. I mean, I've been to Chicago, but only for an hour. So I needed a little bit of a a little bit of a boost to my visual imagination. And I just noticed there was a lot of art nouveau architecture. So when I came to write the scene, that's what I had in my head was this beautiful and it's it's all above the shop fronts. So I like that idea that it's not just a classic apartment block, you know. You you'd have to look up to see it in other words. And yeah. all the detail is up yeah. there. It's just this hidden door between two shops. So, yeah, I had fun writing that. I think I might have gone, what I was talking about earlier, about just choosing which little bits of detail to pop in. I think I went slightly overboard describing the panelling. There's a word for it. But I, I think I went slightly over the top describing it because it was so... Um,
0: well, it was so, no, I don't. I just loved Pitch and Marco, one of Lucy's children, hates it cause he only likes yes. white things. I <laughs> find that really funny. And uh. that when. Yeah, I don't want to reveal too much about what happens, but I just love the fact that he's like, no, I don't like these old things. And it happens again in in a different house, doesn't it? His house that they're about to
1: move into, yes.
0: Thank you so much. I feel like we've covered so many topics and it's been great to talk to you and to share your objects and find out more about how you write oh. and everything. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review and help get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Lisa's work, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcast. I'm Izzy Sotti. See you next time.